Internal tools are often built with Ruby on Rails or Node.js. Developers create entire full-fledged applications in order to suit simple needs such as database lookups, dashboarding, and product refunds. This internal tooling creates a drain on engineering resources. Retool is a low-code platform for creating internal tools. These internal tools can be written by BizOps people, marketing people, or other roles other than engineering. David DeSue is the founder of Retool and joins the show to talk through what he has built. David, welcome to the show. Thanks. How's it going? All right. Retool is your company. Retool is for building internal tools. Explain what an internal tool is. Yeah. So um, internal tools are sort of all the tools that software engineers build for other people in the company. So sales, marketing, support, operations, stuff like that. So for example, if you want to be managing uh, all the podcasts, adding tags to particular podcasts, stuff like that, that's probably some internal tool or some CMS that you have that allows you to do that. How have these internal tools historically been built? So typically software engineers basically build stuff from scratch um, using some language like JavaScript and probably some framework like React, Angular, Vue, or whatever else. And this is actually pretty inefficient. This is actually how we started Retool actually, was we ourselves built a lot of these internal tools. And after you build a good amount of these, you realize they all do very different things. So, you know, some of our customers have tools, let's say, to process withdrawals. Some customers have tools to manage promo codes. Some uh, customers have tools to manage menus for restaurants. You know, a lot of stuff. These all do very different things. Fundamentally, they actually all have kind of the same building blocks. You know, probably your tools are not too different either. It's probably just a bunch of tables, a bunch of buttons, a bunch of dropdowns, forms, text inputs, that kind of stuff. And so after we built a lot of these internal tools from scratch every time, we ourselves realized, hey, you know, maybe there could be a faster way of building all of this stuff instead of building it from scratch, writing React or JavaScript every single time. What if there could be a sort of much higher level way of building this instead of, you know, let's say, you know, when you drag on a button, you know, when you want to, let's say, build a button, you have to worry about debouncing the button. You have to worry about firing the post request. You have to worry about showing errors when it fails. And that's actually a lot of code to actually write. And so all these tools, the, the way you build them is you build them from scratch, right? You sort of write JavaScript, probably using a framework like React. And it is quite slow to build all this stuff from scratch. And it's quite tedious. And so when we ourselves built all these tools over and over again, we were thinking to ourselves, maybe there's a faster way of building all this stuff. What if there were a higher level way? of building all this stuff. And so that's basically Retool. So in Retool, you use a drag and drop interface to build something like 50 or 60% of you know, what you're looking to build. And then the last 30 or 40% is then built, you write a little bit of code to sort of customize exactly what you want. Why did you start working on Retool? Sure. Fundamentally, I think good engineers are to some extent lazy because they don't like doing the same thing over and over again. And so in our case, we ourselves had built so many internal tools before that eventually after you build 10, 20, 30 of them, you realize there should be a faster way of building this stuff. And so the, the exact inspiration point actually was when we started Retool, we were looking, uh, we ourselves were building internal tools to do a lot of things. You know, we were starting a fintech company at the time. And some things you have to do include, uh, for example, when someone tries to withdraw money, 
you have to verify they are who they say they are. So you have to do some KYC, you have to do some AML. Uh, KYC is know your customer laws. AML is anti-money laundering. There's a lot of fraud as well. People are sending money back and forth. And so for all these tools, what we would do is we'd actually build maybe the first half or so in some sort of open source BI tool, probably something like Metabase, uh, maybe, you know, Tableau, Chartio, you know, et cetera. There's 30 of these BI tools. But then when we actually want to take action on that data, so let's say we look at the withdrawals in Metabase, you know, we say select star from withdrawals ordered by ID descending or something. Um, so we see the withdrawals, but then when we actually want to go and approve them, there is no BI tool that allows you to actually write data back the database. You know, if you sort of look at the 30, 40, 50 BI tools there are, none of them support that. And so what we had to do that is say, okay, well, you know, now we can see the withdrawals. Now we actually have to go build a tool or go use the console. Um, and so at the beginning, what I would do is I would open a Rails console and then go find, you know, uh, it's like w equals withdrawal dot find open paren 42, close paren or something, w dot approve, uh, exclam, you know, to make it actually work. But of course, this is really inefficient, right? Like I can use the console, but you know, when we started hiring people, we certainly did not want to give people console access. And so then we actually had to go create sort of bespoke internal front ends built, uh, I think we actually built them in ClojureScript for fun, but I always had to sort of build these front ends from scratch, basically, just to write back to the database. And so to us, that seemed really stupid, right? Because th these BI tools are sort of very good for reading data from your database, but as soon as you want to write data, you have to start entirely over from scratch. And so that was, to some extent, the inspiration where, hey, all these BI tools are very good for sort of you know, if you, let's say, want a chart, want a table, you can write SQL, get table, get chart. It's very commoditized. But there is nothing similar for writing back to a database or to an API. That's, that's what we'd call sort of internal tools or internal applications, basically. You first started working on it in 2017. Tell me about the initial version of Retool. Yeah. The initial version was very basic. When we first started, it was... I think we basically supported one workflow, which, which actually turns out to be a very common workflow, but basically we supported one workflow, which is um, you want to see a particular table, let's say users, for example, and then you want to be able to search those users, do something against the users, maybe you know, change a Boolean field or something, and then see a, another table that has a foreign key somehow connected to users. So maybe it's users and transactions, for example, or users and purchases or something like that. And so that was fundamentally the use case that we solved, sort of you know, crud on top of two sort of you know, semi-interconnected tables, basically. And then we just started showing that to customers. Uh, and surprisingly, that is actually a pretty common workflow, sort of seeing two linked tables and doing something, uh, searching maybe the, the, the sort of first one, taking an action on the first one, searching the second one, doing action on the second one. And so that's where we started. And then, as you can imagine, customers started asking for a, a large amount of things. I think what's interesting about Retool is that it's almost like a new IDE or almost like a new programming language. It's a new way of building applications, right? And so it's fundamentally quite different from using React or, or whatever else. Right? It's, you know, it's a visual way of building all this stuff. And so the challenges we face are quite broad. So in particular, for example, I'm going to give you like a small example feature request that became quite big or that became sort of quite important for us was um, when we were working on the table component, the sort of amount of requests for modifications or sort of advanced customization of the table component is kind of mind boggling. You know, people would ask, for example, hey, 
Can I color particular columns? Can I sort by multiple columns? Can I actually map the columns themselves? So, you know, instead of showing, let's say, the ID, I want to show the ID times 10, uh, for example. And so we had to sort of find ways to support all these things because we want, you know, multiplying ID by 10 is not an unreasonable request, right? And so I think the interesting part about Retool is that it is sort of so broad. It's like building a new programming language. And so you have to support a lot of things. You know, you sort of, and so Retool is just sort of very broad as a product. And so if you think about all the things you have to support, it's, you know, if you think about a programming language, a programming language has to allow you to do practically anything, you know, and if it doesn't, or if it's uncomfortable to do something, I've actually changed the programming language to, to allow you to do it better. Given. So the interesting thing about Retool is that the work to be done really is quite broad. And it's quite interesting because of that. I think if you, if you had told me that, you know, you're just going to work on building internal tools for the rest of your life, you know, I think that's that's interesting. But but telling me that, you know, I get to work on a new programming language or a you know, brand new way of building applications, I think that is really, really quite interesting. Tell me about the stack that you used to initially build Retool. So we got quite lucky uh, in the sense that we started at quite a good time. So the front and the back end are pretty simple. So the front end is, is uh, JavaScript. And we migrated over to TypeScript maybe a year ago now. I think we're maybe 90% of the way there now. Uh, we just found a lot of bugs that you know, we could have called TypeScript, basically. Uh, so, so anyways, JS, uh, TypeScript on the front end. And on the back end, uh, mostly JavaScript today, We maybe 50% of the migration there uh, to TypeScript uh, and Node in the back end. The part where we got really lucky, though, is that we ourselves deploy via Docker and Kubernetes. And that has actually enabled us to release on-prem versions of Retool that are just Docker images uh, that are quite simple. And so now today, a large amount of our uh, larger customers actually run Retool on-prem. I think that's interesting for a variety of reasons. Uh, the reason they run it on-prem is because they have security considerations or or maybe you know they have, let's say, continuity considerations. Um, and so when you run Retool on-prem, no matter what happens to Retool as a company, you, know, you will continue to have Retool running forever sort of in your own infrastructure. And all this on-prem stuff is only possible because we started it you know, around mid-2017 when Docker and Kubernetes became quite popular. And so for us to deliver on-prem versions of Retool, it's, you know, it's exactly how we host Retool ourselves. And so it's really quite simple. Had we started you know, three years before, I think it would have been substantially harder. It would have been you know, via Chef, via Puppet, or whatever else. And the, uh, supporting on-prem would have been a, a whole different ballgame. So. so given that the stack was pretty self-fulfilling prophecy, what were the difficulties in getting the first version of Retool working? Oh, yeah. I think... There were a lot of challenges from a product and from a technical perspective. So from a product perspective, going back to this analogy, it's kind of like, you know, a new programming language, right? And so a lot of things we'd have to consider, it's like, do we want to build that into Retool or not? And to what extent do we want to support it? Or do you just want people to hack it? So let me think of a good example here. Maybe a sort of small example is um, Retool supports connecting to any REST API or even any gRPC or, or GraphQL API. But for some very popular uh, services, such as, let's say, Stripe, uh, we actually have a built-in connector that you can use where it sort of you know, shows you the documentation for every endpoint that you could potentially be hitting, tells you what parameters you need. We basically generate it from the open API or Swagger spec, basically. And so you know, this, is, this is a small thing, but it's, it's an interesting consideration is, you know, what APIs do we support natively versus what APIs do we just let you sort of uh, hit via you know, REST or GraphQL or gRPC, basically. 
And that's one small example, uh, but, but you know, there are more advanced examples such as, you know, tables. You know, in tables, we could, you know, allow you to specify which color to color every cell, you know, we could give you like a drop down or something, but we decided not to do that. We decided instead we just let you write JavaScript uh, to sort of decide what, what color the uh, you know, cell should be. And so that way you can choose any hex color you want. And you can even, in fact, even make it conditional. So you can say, hey, you know, if, if let's say, you know, the, the cell uh, value. And so you can use JavaScript to customize uh, the color of every cell. And so you can say, hey, if the cell value uh, mod two equal equals zero, question mark, then it should be green. Otherwise it should be red. And so that's an example of uh, something that, you know, maybe is slightly harder for a non-technical user to grasp but dramatically increases the flexibility of retool itself. Um, and so that's, that's you know, an example of an interesting product decision. A similar thing is if you're, let's say, working on a language, let's say like you know, Ruby or JavaScript or whatever else, you, know, you have to think a little bit about whether you want to add, let's say, uh, new features into JavaScript, for example. You know, for example, uh, ES6 has, for example, constants, right? And so that's a feature that you know, it's similar to sort of thinking through, you know, is that good, is that bad? What does that enable? What sort of downsides are there? That's sort of the kind of stuff we think about from a product perspective and building retool. From a technical perspective, a lot of the challenges have to do with scaling and security. So for example, uh, on the security side, the fact that you can write JavaScript and retool is tremendously powerful, but actually also tremendously scary um, because in some cases for many of our customers, our customers may not even trust their own employees, actually. And so if so, we actually isolate the JavaScript and we run it in a sandbox. And if you don't do that, an employee or an, a creator of a retool app could actually exfiltrate from the retool end user their credentials uh, or their cookies and you know, stuff like that, and then send them back to sort of any API endpoint they wanted to. And the fact that we sandbox inside of iframe prevents that. And so there are a lot of interesting considerations uh, over there on the security side. On the performance side, as you could imagine, because we're connecting to databases and APIs and potentially piping lots of data through our backends, there's a lot of stuff we have to worry about there as well. Uh, and Retool today, you know, I think we have a lot of work uh, to be doing on, on the performance side. So. All right, well, let's go through an example of a modern inter, uh, internal tool I might want. So we have a Google spreadsheet at Software Engineering Daily that manages all the podcast guests that are coming up. We have their email addresses, and let's just say I want to send an email to all of my podcast guests. What would be an experience of doing that? Yeah, so backing up very briefly, I think what's interesting if you think about Retool is sort of in which use cases it is good. And so a good example is exactly as you said, sort of guests coming up. If it's stuff that you enter manually uh, by hand, Oftentimes, Google Sheet is you know, sort of well good enough for what you're looking to do. You, you know, if you have you know, 50, 100 rows, it's pretty easy to manage that. And so if, if you have something like 50, 100 rows of manually entered data, a Google Sheet is actually pretty good for that. You know, it's, it's pretty straightforward to manually enter the data, and you don't have to worry too much. You, know, you don't have that many advanced UIs on top of this, or you don't need such advanced UIs on top of it. However, if let's say, uh, you know, SC Daily has been going for a decent amount of time now, and you guys have a lot of episodes, uh, I've been a listener, and if you actually, if I'm guessing this stuff is stored in a database somewhere where you have sort of all the previous guests, you're like, okay, this guest hasn't been around for, you know, maybe two years, maybe it's time to check back in on them, maybe bring them back on again, get an update as sort of how things are going, et cetera. If that stuff is stored in a database, then the only way to build an application on top of the database is really writing code. And that's, you know, typically writing React or, or writing JavaScript and using React. 
And so where retool sort of comes in is uh, if you're really looking to build a UI and the uh, sort of comparison or the sort of the best next option is using React, the retool is quite good for that. If you're just managing, you know, a few rows inside of Google Sheets, probably Google Sheets is actually better for that. Um, but anyways, to go back to your original question now, uh, we do support Google Sheet, Sheets as a backend, and so you can actually connect Retool to Google Sheets. And so what you can do is, you know, you launch Retool, you basically uh, log in via Google, choose sort of the uh, files you want us to give us access to, you select the spreadsheet. And then what you can do is you can uh, start building UIs on top of that very quickly. So you can, for example, drag on a button. Uh, maybe you want to drag on a table first to show all of the rows in the in the uh, Google Sheet. And you can enable multi-select on the table. So you can actually go select multiple guests that you want to email or something, or you, know, you want to select all, select all of them. And then you might want to drag on a button that says, hey, you know, and then you can configure the button on the right-hand side of a bunch of properties. And so uh, you can say, hey, this button should, you know, actually go make a post request, let's say to MailChimp or, you know, SendGrid or whatever your email sending service is. And then you can sort of design your email and send it to MailChimp or you know whatever else, and say, hey, you know, when I press this button, I want to send the post request and actually send that email. And so it's fairly simple. It would take you know maybe two three minutes to build this uh, tool. Uh, whereas uh, if you build it from scratch via React, it would probably take substantially longer. You probably have to worry a lot about OAuthing into Google Sheets, uh, which itself is, is uh, you know the Google Sheets API is, is quite difficult to work with. But then also sort of managing credentials with MailChimp, you know, et cetera, stuff like that. So Building it from scratch may take you a few hours, and retool probably take you know maybe five, six minutes, something like that. So substantially faster. Okay, so if that's a simple example, let's go through a complex example. Tell me about a very complicated app. Yeah, I think a good example is if we think about very complex workflows, and these are primarily in sort of larger companies. So let's say that you are, for example, Plaid. Um, Plaid is a customer of ours. And Plaid at this point is, you know, a fairly large company. They have a lot of things going on inside of, inside there. And a lot of things are very sensitive, right? Let's say, you know, someone is trying to get access to a bank account. So let's say you take a customer like Plaid, for example. Plaid is a fairly large company now. They have a lot of things going on internally. And they have sort of various levels of support uh, reps. And so they have a level one support rep that, you know, if you write in and you say, hey, for some reason, the you know, I try to get the balance for this particular customer's bank account and it returns the number is actually wrong. Let's say um, you're a developer, you're just testing it. You're like, hey, I'm testing on my own bank account. For some reason, the, the balance is wrong. Plaid probably wants to go build applications that allows Plaid themselves to go call their own API to sort of see your, just go test their own API and see sort of uh, transactions or the balances in a particular uh, bank account. However, they probably don't want, let's say, a level two or level three support rep to do that. Instead, they may only allow level six or level seven support reps to do that. And so you can imagine there are sort of a lot of these sort of uh, more restricted or more sensitive, let's say, applications that a company may build. And they only want to you know, sh show these applications or, or uh, these capabilities to let's say particular sets of people inside of the company. And so, or, or maybe when you sort of take an action on a particular user, let's say uh, Plaid in this case, you know, maybe uh, let's say creating a new promo code, for example, that you know, saves the user a substantial amount of money in their contract. In order to do that, potentially you want to go through sort of various levels of approval. So 
maybe the account executive themselves can't do that. They actually need to escalate to the head of sales who, who can then approve discounts up to 20% and then can go to the VP of sales who can uh, approve discounts about, let's say, 50% or something like that. And so uh, these are examples of applications that start becoming quite complex in terms of sort of the uh, operations around them, sort of who can use them, who needs to approve every action, that kind of stuff. And that kind of stuff, you know, if you try to build that, that in-house, it would actually be quite difficult. You'd have to, you know, basically build some sort of voting or consensus system where you say, hey, for particular, you know, API endpoints, we want to actually go ping three people to sort of get their approval on them. Or for, you know, uh, withdrawals, or well, let's say, you know, discounts above 50%, we actually want to get three people from this level or seven people from this other level, and whichever one comes in earliest is fine, basically. And building that is, is, you know, from scratch, is actually quite difficult, right? Whereas in Retool, it's basically supported out of the box. And so you can say, hey, you know, this particular query that is, turns out, a post request to make a new discount is actually should be protected. And it should be protected. And it requires approval from these groups that we can actually sync to Okta or any sort of single sign-on provider. Uh, and you can say, hey, it requires, you know, three approvals from this group or five from this group or seven from this group or whatever. And so that's an example, I would say, of a more complicated application that would be very difficult to build in-house. You probably have to just go write a lot of code in your backend to go support this. But in Retool, we support directly out of the box, uh, which makes it substantially faster. How do you use Retool at your own company? How do you use Retool at Retool itself? Yeah. So as you can imagine, we have a good amount of internal tools that, that we build ourselves. Um, for example... When we manage an on-prem deployments, on-prem deployments have a license key. And so uh, we create license keys via a Retool app that we build ourselves. We manage a lot of the analytics stuff as well. So uh, if a particular user writes in and says, let's say, hey, my uh, app is broken, for example, and uh, I don't know what caused it, but could you please revert back? You know, This is for non-on-prem customers, for cloud customers. Could you please restore it back, let's say, three days or something that's easy for us to do by Retool as well. So primarily, I would say for support in operational use cases. Actually, a pretty interesting use case uh, too is on the sales and engineering side. So on the sales side, I don't know if you've ever tried using Salesforce. It's, it's quite slow. It's it's sort of, I have not never met anyone who really enjoys using Salesforce, but everyone uses it, obviously. So, so we, you know, any, any sort of legitimate SaaS company uses Salesforce, so we use it ourselves. But we've actually built our own front ends on top of Salesforce to let our sales engineers uh, enter data into Salesforce better. Because Salesforce, uh, if you sort of go to, let's say, the opportunity field, uh, which is how you manage the uh, opportunities uh, sort of any given person is working on, um, it's actually quite difficult to enter data into there. It doesn't have very much context. It, it doesn't, uh, it shows you all the fields, whereas you only want to edit one or two of them. And so it's just quite bulky, basically. And so we ourselves have actually built an application on top of Salesforce, basically a front end on top of Salesforce, that makes it substantially, that makes Salesforce substantially nicer to use. So that's an interesting example as well on the sales side. On the engineering side, I think this is this is actually really quite interesting is there is this internal tool that Stripe themselves built, uh, not using Retool, that basically allows engineers to every day wake up and see sort of where their PRs are at. And so it's built on top of GitHub and it basically shows you, hey, you know, of the PRs that uh, where you are, the reviewer, which ones are blocked on you, uh, which ones are ready to merge, as well as for the PRs you have out, uh, which ones are waiting on review. So you should go you know, ping people to make them review your PR, as well as which ones are also ready to merge. And these are, this is an example of an app that, you know, you could probably, 
if you go to sort of four separate screens in GitHub, you can go find this data. But GitHub actually does not have a sort of single view of all of this. And so what Stripe did is they actually built an internal tool that allows their engineers to sort of get a sort of bird's eye view of all the PRs they have sort of waiting on them or block on others uh, so they can uh, sort of move their PRs forward. And so this is an example of retool app that we've built in-house, but we actually also turned it into a template. And so you can actually directly go to retool.com slash templates and you know, uh, clone this application and then just log in via GitHub and you can just go use this app yourself. Um, and so I, I think that's sort of an interesting side effect of retool is by sort of commoditizing internal tools across different companies, we can sort of enable all companies to substantially up-level their quality of internal tools as well as have internal tools that you know, they probably would not have built themselves, like you know, to substantially up-level their internal tools. So we, for example, as a retool at as you know, a sort of 10 or 15% engineering team would probably not have uh, spent the effort to go build a internal tool that allows our 15 engineers to go track their GitHub PRs. But because it's a template and a retool that now we can just directly go and clone, we get sort of the internal tools that Stripe has without having to build them in-house. I think that's a interesting side effect of a retool. Retool is a very detailed application. There's lots of data sources, UI components, AI APIs to connect to. There's this big end-by-end matrix of possibilities of apps that people could build. And if you want to satisfy this end-by-end matrix of all the different data sources and APIs and different ways that people could build apps, you've got a lot of ground to cover. When you started Retool, was there a specific subset of those components that you were focused on? Yes. So we started we mostly focused on data entry into or data editing into databases and APIs. And so these sort of core two resources, what we call them sort of backends that we connected to, or Postgres uh, as a database. So we could both read and write from Postgres, as well as REST APIs. And so you could make get requests, put requests, post, post requests, et cetera. So those were sort of the two main data sources we supported on the component side. We basically supported text inputs, dropdowns, sort of most things you'd find in Bootstrap, maybe the top 10 or 20 components you could find in Bootstrap. What I think is interesting is if you think about Retool, it is quite broad, but fundamentally, you know, a programming language itself is also quite broad, right? If you think about, let's say, JavaScript, you can do, you can get a computer or, or a web browser to do practically anything with JavaScript, right? And, and Retool is similar in that regard, sort of the core language or the sort of core building blocks of Retool are actually quite compact. It is just that the, the, because the building blocks are so primitive, or maybe primitive is not the right word. I think JavaScript is quite primitive. I think Retool is much higher level, but, but nevertheless, the building blocks are quite unopinionated, I would say. You know, the table is not just for, let's say, displaying orders, right? You know, the table can do anything. It's a table component. And so because the components themselves are quite unopinionated, uh, you are actually able to build quite complex things uh, with uh, sort of the building blocks that we give you. Tell me more about how Retool actually works, how the editor works. So when I load up a new version of the editor to build a new internal tool, what's happening? Yeah, so how it works from a technical perspective is all Retool applications are basically JSON blobs. And so if you, let's say, build an application where you drag on, uh, let's say, a table, a button, and write two queries, right? So the table maybe pulls in data from, let's say, Salesforce or Postgres or whatever else. So you might write, you know, select star from opportunities, right? You know, that's a Salesforce query that pulls in data from Salesforce. 
That, as you can imagine, is, is just you know some sort of JSON that uh, where the query is select star from opportunities, the query type is uh, Salesforce, and there's a bunch of other properties such as you know query timeout, caching is probably uh, turned off by default, all the kind of stuff. That's just a JSON blob basically. And the table, then you can connect that to that query by saying, hey, this table should pull in data from query1.data or Salesforce query.data or something. And so it pulls in data from that Salesforce query. And again, the table just has a bunch of properties. It's kind of like React, right? If you think about React, if you had a table, you'd probably have, let's say, the column widths. You might have, let's say, the data. And so the data in this case would be a Salesforce query.data. You may have, let's say, the column ordering, stuff like that. So we sort of have all those props. And then that all is just JSON. And so a retool application is basically just a bunch of these components and a bunch of these queries. And you know, there are some other things too, but fundamentally it's, it's just a giant JSON blob basically. And so when you first open the retool editor, uh, we basically load the JSON blob from our backend and then we render it uh, on the front end. And the front end basically takes the JSON blob, parses it, and then uh, renders it into you know, tables, queries, buttons, you know, all that kind of interesting stuff basically. And then, when you start modifying it, you know, we just write back directly to the, to the sort of uh, APIs uh, to say, hey, you know, you added a table at position, you know, three, five, uh, this table is of name, Salesforce data, et cetera. And so that's essentially how it works. And then when the interesting thing is because we actually, because it's actually all JSON blob, you can actually do a lot of things that sort of most, uh, I would say sort of low code or no code tools would not support. It's so you can actually sync this stuff all to Git and so I think what's really quite interesting about the fact that it's all a JSON blob is actually, we actually let you serialize this JSON blob into YAML, which then becomes quite readable, and then sync it to Git. Uh, so you can actually do version control on top of your retool applications. And this is really interesting because it means that you can start doing PRs. Uh, so for example, you can say, hey, you know, I'm an engineer building applications, but I actually want to let my support team build simple applications too. And so they can go build these applications, but maybe they can only commit to, let's say, the dev branch, and then they have to request a PR or a review. And then I can then, as an engineer, I review the PR and then merge it into master. And so you can sort of get the benefits of writing code. I think sort of a lot of the benefits of writing code are ancillary to sort of writing the code itself. Uh, it's really sort of the version control, the testing and everything. And so we support uh, doing all of that even though we let you build the application substantially faster in a drag and drop way. So. If I build a really detailed, complex app, are there performance limitations that I'm going to hit? Great question. So mostly performance limitations have to do with the amount of data you're piping into Retool or sort of directly manipulating inside of Retool. So uh, if you think about, let's say, you know, you have a database that has, let's say, 20 million rows, let's say, and maybe, let's say, 10 million columns, for example, that would be quite large. If you try to write a select star from big table, you would pull in a lot of data. And so the performance limitations are both on the front end and the back end. So on the back end, what our back end does is it actually sort of connects to your database and tries to pull in the data. And if, if the data blob is, let's say, you know, probably be like terabytes or something, that really might take a while. Um, so we don't recommend doing that. And so we recommend using some sort of pagination to pull in, let's say, you know, a limited amount of data. If you're pulling in, let's say, you know, 1,000 or even 10,000 rows times like 10 or 20 columns, that's no problem. And then once the data is pulled into your browser on your front end, you then have to worry about performance limitations that Chrome will run into. And so, you know, you only have so much RAM on your computer. And so if you tried loading in a sort of 10 million row table with 10 million columns, uh, your browser probably will not have a good time with that either. And so 
the limitations really are with either sort of your database or with your uh, front end. Retool itself doesn't really do that much to your data. I mean, if you think about sort of building a web application, right? You know, let's say you build a simple web app where you are making a GET request that returns a giant blob of data and you, post, and you uh, sort of put into a table. Really, the performance limitations are regarding the network, network request. How long does it take for your backend to fulfill that to send the data to your browser, as well as can your browser handle the uh, amount of data that is in it? Um, so really, those are the two limitations. There are, when you're building the applications, there are some performance uh, problems when you have lots of data in a table, because when you actually, for example, drag and drop the table, uh, we re-render the table, right? Because uh, we're using React. And so that does get costly if you have a lot of data in your table. But really, when you're using the applications themselves, which is really when you really care about performance, it really is how much RAM does your computer have, as well as can your backend return the data performantly. Tell me about the cloud services that you use. This is funny. So we actually use all three. So we use uh, AWS, we use Azure, and we use uh, GCP. So we use them mostly for different things. Really, most of our stuff is on Azure today. The reason we're on Azure is because uh, when we first started uh, Retool, Azure gave us uh, $500,000 of Azure credits. And so we started on Azure and have been on them ever since. That said, there are a few Azure services we don't use because they're fairly immature. So for example, um, RDS, uh, we still use Amazon. So when you log into Retool for the first time, we create you a sample kind of test database or scratch pad database that you can use to uh, store some data or just for testing purposes. And that is an RDS because uh, Microsoft, Microsoft's, I forgot what uh, their sort of equivalent RDS is, does not have great Postgres support. And so we use RDS for that reason. Uh, and then we also use uh, for GCP, we use BigQuery mostly uh, for analytics. You said you manage your own Kubernetes, right? We do, yeah. Why not use container instances or ECS or whatever? From our perspective, the compute of Retool is not really the limiting factor. Uh, even today, if you look at sort of Retool Cloud, we have a lot of customers that you know, are really using Retool quite a bit, but even still, we're, you know, our sort of Azure bills are actually quite minimal. And the reason is, if you sort of go back to the performance discussion, really most of the performance or most of the hard work is done by the database with the API. And so if you, if you think about you know, our backend that connects to our database, Really, it's just ferrying data from your database to your front end. And so it's just sort of piping data through, basically. And so the performance implications are, are it really doesn't require that much compute, basically. So from our perspective, given that you know, we don't require that much compute and you know, we're not scaling to insane amounts of or insane clusters or whatever else, it's easier to manage it ourselves. Um, that said, in the future, uh, we certainly want to go multi-region. And so as we go multi-region, it's something that we would certainly look into or explore. I was speaking more about the difficulty of managing Kubernetes versus managing, for example, these Azure Compute instances or Azure Container instances or Amazon Elastic Containers or whatever container instances they have, basically using standalone containers instead of Kubernetes. Yeah, so this may just be a relic of sort of when we started. I think when we started, uh, when we first looked at this, it was relatively immature. This is maybe 
three and a half years ago now. I'm sure it has evolved quite a bit since, and I'm sure we should probably look into it at this point. It has not been our top priority so far because everything's working uh, swimmingly well on the DevOps server side. So, What's the life cycle of a database query for one of my retool apps? Yeah, so... When you run the database query, so, so let's say you open the retool app, right? When you open the retool app, that will, let's say you have a query that runs on sort of application load. What happens is your front end will then make a request to our back end uh, to say, hey, you know, could you please run query one? We also do a lot of interesting thing here, things here to prevent SQL injection, for example. So we use parameter statements, et cetera. So, you know, let's say you have your query a select star from users where first name, I like, curly, curly, uh, textable1.value, we then also pass in the parameters into the backend as well. So we say, hey, I'll run query one. And these are, let's see, the parameters that I want to pass in. Um, so for the uh, database query, the first parameters, let's say, you know, Josh or something like that. And so you, you pass that into our backend. Our, our backend says, okay, cool. You want to run query one and you want to run query one with these parameters. Um, and so we basically then connect to your database uh, and say, hey, uh, or always first look at query, we'll connect our database, see what query one is. And we say, okay, query one looks like, you know, it is on this particular resource. It's a Postgres resource. And so we're going to go to our Postgres connector. And then uh, that has a pool that's connections that connects to a bunch of uh, different databases. Maybe it's sort of connected to yours, maybe not. And so if it's not, it will connect to your database and then go run that query. Uh, your database will go run that query, uh, return the results to our backend. And then our backend will then return uh, those results then directly back to your front end, which is your Chrome browser. Um, we do some logistical stuff in the middle as well. So we have audit logs, for example, that we manage. And so we say, hey, you know, it looks like this user ran the get users query uh, on the Postgres database. It took this many seconds. They ran it from this IP address, uh, all that kind of fun stuff. So there's some, uh, uh, some notes that we take, uh, but fundamentally it's, it's pretty simple. Do you have a set of management principles that you use for running retool that's distinctive? Yeah, so I think what has changed a decent amount since starting Retool to now, well, we for me at least, is at the very start of a company, the best way to move the company forward is by doing the work yourself. You know, you're really just pushing the rock up the hill, basically, and you're sort of furiously pushing it. But then as the company gets bigger, you know, at five people or at 10 people, the impact that uh, we all have at the company diminishes to some extent, right? You know, today at Retool, you know, at 40-ish people, everyone sort of, you know, is 2.5% of Retool, basically. And so, of course, the work we do is tremendously important to Retool, obviously. But in the end, sort of the, the impact, you know, goes down to some extent. But, but the impact that we have on the rest of Retool goes up. And so I, I think one change for me since starting Retool and you know, having been here for you know, a while now has been that the sort of impact that I have really is on the people around me and how can I make them more effective? Um, and so for me, you know, today I'm the CEO, right? And so, you know, on average, let's say 40 people to 100%, everyone, you know, makes 2.5% decisions. Maybe I'm the CEO. So maybe I make, you know, 4% or 5% decisions. So, so maybe sort of slightly higher than average, but nevertheless, you know, I only make 5% of the decisions at retail, right? And so 95% of decisions are made by other people. And so really my job is not to make decisions, rather it is to empower other people to make the correct decision. And you know, a lot of that is giving the context, a lot of those hiring the right people that have the similar values uh, to the rest of us. And so a lot of my job today is really, how can I enable other people to make the correct decision rather than making the correct decision myself? 
And so that I think is, is one management principle that I, I think is quite interesting and something that I've learned you know, since starting Retool. And so similar themes are, I think empowerment is, is, is quite important to us. And so if you look at Retool out of you know, 40-ish people today, roughly a third of us uh, used to be former founders. We've started our own sort of uh, companies, projects, or whatever else. And that I think is quite important to us too, because we want people who are self-starters, who really want to go have a big impact, um, but just need to be sort of pointed in the right direction or in the sort of right vague direction. And so from a management principles perspective, I think a, a big, big theme for me really is uh, empowering people and hiring the right people, hiring motivated people and sort of uh, giving them sort of high level principles about where we should be going and then setting them free and let, let them uh, do their best work. What's your long-term vision for the company? The goal for Retool is to be the way engineers build software. And we're starting with internal software today. If you think about going back to your original question, if you think about sort of how software is built, it's actually quite surprising how inefficient it is to build a simple application that writes data back to a database or an API takes surprisingly a long amount of time. And a lot of the building blocks really should be pretty simple, but it really should be a much higher level way of building these apps. If you think about building simple applications today versus 10 years ago versus 20 years ago, 20 years ago, maybe you would use Java Swing, for example. You probably write, you know, maybe a thousand lines of code to, you know, write some data back to a database, right? Uh, maybe 10 years ago, you'd be using jQuery, let's say, JavaScript. Today, you'd probably be using React and JavaScript. Uh, and fundamentally, you know, programming hasn't really changed uh, in any sort of fundamental way in the past 10 or 20 years. And so Retool is trying to change that. We're, we're trying to be sort of a substantially or fundamentally new way of building applications. And the hope is, you know, today Retool only built internal frontends. The hope is eventually to expand out to sort of other internal applications, including backends, including scheduled jobs like cron jobs, for example, including more workflowy type things. So it's let's say um, if this happens, you know, then do this, and then connect to the database, and then sort of take a look inside there, and then and then if this is true, then do this, etc. So we want to get to the point uh, in the next few years where we are the way developers build internal software. And then eventually one day, the way developers that. build all software. But, but, but that's, that's still quite far away. It's pretty ambitious. You studied both philosophy and computer science. What have you found at the intersection of those two disciplines? I think there's two main areas. One is logic, which you know, sort of are the underpinnings of computer science. And there's some stuff here that's really interesting. One of my favorite theorems of logic is the compactness theorem, which says something along the lines of, if you have a set of statements and you can satisfy every finite subset, then the infinite subset of all these, or the whole set of the uh, of these statements must also be true, which sounds quite intuitive, but actually turns out is, is occasionally not true. So if you look at, let's say, let's say the set of statements, I'm thinking of a natural number, but that number is not one, it is not two, it is not three, it is not four, you know, et cetera, all the way up to infinity. Any finite subset of that uh, set of sentences can be satisfied because you're always missing either a number or you're missing the sort of an original statement of I'm thinking of a number and it's not one of these. And so you can sort of satisfy every finite subset of these sentences, but it's actually impossible to satisfy the whole thing because you know it is impossible for you to be thinking of a number that is not one, that is not two, that is not three, not four, not five, et cetera. So I think logic is quite interesting. And that's, that's one major intersection. Another one is sort of what are the limitations of computers? and sort of what separates a computer from a human. And so if you sort of go back, you know, 
20, 30, 50 years ago, people would say, hey, if a computer can play chess, certainly, you know, they would be as smart as a human then. And of course, computers can play uh, chess much better than humans can. And then some people would say, hey, you know, if they can play Go, I would consider, you know, a computer to be human. And of course, they can beat us in Go now as well, right? And so thinking about sort of what the difference is between humans and computers are is also quite interesting, but that's maybe a little bit further out. I don't think we're going to be getting uh, sort of uh, autonomous AIs uh, anytime soon, so... Cool. David, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. It's been great having talking to you too. So thanks.